Good morning, everybody. Really glad to see you all this morning. Thanks for being here. Thanks for uh, being cooperative as we continue to walk this road, um, trying, to, trying to gather ourselves in the, in the best way possible. Uh, I'm really glad to see you all this morning. Do you have your Bible with you? 2 Kings chapter 4 is where you need to go. 2 Kings chapter 4. Last week, we covered a ton of ground as we looked at Elisha's interaction with the Shunammite woman and her son. We divided that passage into three parts, tried to deal with each part before moving on to the next. And then we tried to make a connection to Jesus at the end, which is always a good idea, right? You might remember that imagery of the triple jump that I shared with you last week. First jump was from Elijah to Elisha. Elijah raised the widow's son. Elisha raises the Shunammite's son from the dead. I told you that Elisha is the new Elijah. And then we make the next jump from Elisha to Jesus. Jesus also raises the dead. He raises the widow's son in Luke chapter 7. He raises Jairus' daughter in Mark chapter 5. He raises his buddy Lazarus from the grave in John chapter 11. And when Jesus does these things, he doesn't have to lay on them, stretch himself out upon them. He doesn't have to do like Elisha did last week and make multiple attempts at the matter. No, he touches people and life comes to the dead. He speaks and people come out of the grave. Jesus does not have to appeal to a power outside of or greater than himself. Rather, he acts with the power of God because he is God. Jesus is better than Elijah. Jesus is better than Elisha. And then the third jump we made was from Jesus to Jesus. And I tried to show you that Jesus doesn't just have the power to raise people from physical death to temporary physical life. He has the power to raise people from spiritual death unto eternal life. He himself rose from the dead after dying on the cross for us. He conquered sin. He conquered our sin. He conquered death. That is our death. He defeated the grave. And through his glorious resurrection, he offers us resurrection unto eternal life. He offers us not just life only to die again. He offers us not just victory over physical death. He offers us life that never ends. He speaks of this in John chapter 11 in the very context in which he brings Lazarus out of the tomb. He says to Lazarus' sister, I am the resurrection and the life. He who believes in me, though he die, yet he shall live. And everyone who lives and believes in me shall never die. Do you believe this? She said to him, Yes, Lord, I have believed that you are the Christ, the Son of God, he who is coming into the world. The question for us is, do you believe this? Do you believe that Jesus is the resurrection and the life? That he gives life that conquers death. He gives life that is eternal. I hope that you can answer like Martha did. Yes, Lord, I have believed. This week we're going to cover far less ground. This week we're going to look at two stories that may not seem quite as amazing as what we saw last week, and yet... What we will see in the text today, what we will continue to see in the text today, is God's gracious compassion for and his gracious provision to all kinds of people with all kinds of needs. And he is going to meet those needs in all kinds of ways. You're going to see that same theme in the text today in 2 Kings chapter 4, verses 38 through 44. That's what we're going to cover today, 38 through 44. So let's read it together. It says, When Elisha returned to Gilgal... There was a famine in the land. As the sons of the prophets were sitting before him, he said to his servant, Put on a large pot and boil stew for the sons of the prophets. 
Then one went out into the field to gather herbs and found a wild vine and gathered from it his lap full of wild gourds and came and sliced them into the pot of stew, for they did not know what they were. So they poured it out for the men to eat. As they were eating the stew, they cried out and said, O man of God, there is death in the pot. And they were unable to eat. But he said, Now bring meal. He threw it into the pot and said, Pour it out for the people that they may eat. Then there was no harm in the pot. Now a man came from Baal Shalisha and brought the man of God bread of the first fruits, twenty loaves of barley, and fresh ears of grain in his sack. And he said, Give them to the people that they may eat. His attendant said, What? Will I set this before a hundred men? But he said, Give them to the people that they may eat. For thus says the Lord, they shall eat and have some left over. So he set it before them, and they ate and had some left over, according to the word of the Lord. Let's pray together. Father in heaven, we are thankful for your gracious compassion toward us. Thankful for your gracious provision for us in all kinds of needs that we face. You are a good, good father who does not abandon his children. You provide for us in a variety of ways, some of which seem quite normal and natural, and some of which seem spectacular and are indeed miraculous. And more than anything, you have provided for our greatest need through the death, burial, and resurrection of your son, Jesus Christ. By grace, through faith in him, you have reconciled us to yourself. You have forgiven us our sins. You have cleansed us and redeemed us and justified us and adopted us into your family. And so we praise you and we thank you for all of this good gift. And we pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen. All right, let's look together at verse 38. There is a ton to see here. It says, When Elisha returned to Gilgal, there was a famine in the land. As the sons of the prophets were sitting before him, he said to his servant, Put on a large pot and boil stew For the sons of the prophets. Several things going on that I want to draw your attention to. First is that Elisha is returning to Gilgal. The locations as we follow the story of Elisha and Elijah are significant. This is where Gilgal is where the journey with Elijah and Elisha started just before Elijah was taken up to heaven and passed the baton for this powerful prophetic ministry off to Elisha. You remember that? You remember walking with them? Like Elijah kept saying to Elisha, stay here, stay here. And Elisha kept saying, no, 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 I'm not going to stay here. As the Lord lives and as you yourself live, I will not leave you. And he keeps traveling with him to all of those places. Well, this is where that journey began. And now Elisha has basically come full circle and has performed a miracle in each one of those places where he stopped with Elijah while Elijah was on his way up to heaven, essentially. So he's basically retraced those steps, performing a miracle in each one of those places, circling back. That language of full circle is pretty interesting. Cooper Thompson, who is serving this summer as our summer resident Hebrew expert, um, has helped me see that the word Gilgal, even the word itself, means to circle or to turn about. And indeed, that is what is happening when we get to Gilgal. That language of full circle is coming about. Not only has Elisha come full circle when we see him here at Gilgal, but the sons of the prophets have also come full circle. In fact, that's the second thing I want you to see. The sons of the prophets are sitting at the feet of Elisha as his disciples at this point. 
those guys seemed initially to be a little, at a little bit of odds with Elisha when we first met them. Perhaps they were jealous that he was the chosen one, that he was the one to take uh, the baton from Elijah when he went up to heaven, to receive the double portion of Elijah's spirit, to serve essentially as the firstborn, the heir of the ministry that Elijah was doing. But now, when we meet them in this text, it seems that they gladly sit at the feet of Elisha. He is the teacher, and they are the students. And this scene, of course, reminds us of the disciples of Jesus sitting at his feet as any disciple would with their rabbi, hearing and learning the word of God. So not only has Elisha come full circle, the sons of the prophets have come full circle as well and now gladly sit at the feet of this prophet as his disciples. Third thing I want you to see in this text is that Elisha is aware of the various needs of these guys. All right, look at the text. Elisha is providing for them on a spiritual level. He is teaching them the word of God. And this is primary. Like they are sitting at his feet and learning from him the word of God. And that is their primary need. But Elisha is also recognizing and providing for their physical needs by telling his servant, who's probably Gehazi at this point, to make some stew for them to eat. This physical need of theirs is secondary, but it is not insignificant, right? Their spiritual need is primary, but this physical need of theirs to have their bellies full is not insignificant. And again, I want you to see that we see Jesus doing these same things. Jesus often has a crowd of people sitting around him, and he is, teaching, he is primarily teaching them the word of God. He is primarily preaching, them to the, preaching to them the gospel of the kingdom of God. But he is not unconcerned with their physical needs as well. He will heal. He will feed. He will deliver. Jesus is recognizing these various needs and meeting those needs. Elisha is doing a similar thing. And we, as the people of God, need to do that as well. We need to recognize that the primary need of all of our neighbors, of all of the nations, is the gospel of the Lord Jesus Christ. They need reconciliation to God. They need forgiveness of sins. They need salvation by grace alone, through faith alone, in Christ alone, right? As the primary need, as the eternal need of every man, woman, boy, and girl on the planet. But we also need to recognize they have other needs as well. And we are positioned to help meet those needs along with the spiritual need. We can help with the physical needs. And the fourth thing I want you to see in this first, first verse is maybe the most significant thing, but it comes from this little detail about the famine in the land. And this is most significant because it teaches us about the context in which Elisha is ministering. This famine in the land is a result of the faithlessness and sinfulness and the idolatry and apostasy of the people of God. They have broken the covenant with God and the result is famine. It's a spiritual mess that has resulted in a physical mess. Does that make sense to you? A spiritual mess that has resulted in this physical mess. I want you to read with me a few passages in Deuteronomy chapter 28. Deuteronomy chapter, and this is like scattershot in Deuteronomy 28, but basically that whole chapter outlines the covenant blessings and the covenant curses. God basically says, if you do what I'm telling you to do, these are the good things that will flow from that. Covenant faithfulness equals blessing. If you don't do what I'm telling you to do, here are the curses, here are the punishments that will come as a result of this. And what I want you to see is that one of those things is, is agricultural prosperity. An agricultural nightmare. 
Look at it in chapter 28, verse 1. It'll be on the screen. First part is about the blessings. Verse 1 says, Now it shall be, if you diligently obey the Lord your God, being careful to do all His commandments which I am commanding you today, the Lord, will God, the Lord your God will set you high above all the nations of the earth. All these blessings will come upon you and overtake you if you obey the Lord your God. Right, so that's the general statement. Here are the blessings that come through covenant obedience. And you skip down to verse 8, and he says this. The Lord will command the blessing upon you in your barns and in all that you put your hand to. He will bless you in the land which the Lord your God gives you. If you skip down to verse 12, it says, The Lord will open for you his good storehouse, the heavens, and give rain to your land in its season, and to bless all the work of your hand. And you shall lend to many nations, but you shall not borrow. So, so one of the things, among many other things, one of the things that the Lord promises to his people if they obey him is that there will be plenty to eat. Like the process of planting and harvesting and storing up, like that will all go well for them. But on the other side of the coin, he says in verse 15, if you don't obey, there are curses. Look at it. Verse 15, covenant cursing says, but it shall come about if you do not obey the Lord your God to observe to do all his commandments and his statutes, that, which I charge you today, that these curses will come upon you and overtake you. And then in verse 17, he says, curse shall be your basket and your kneading bowl. Verse 23 says, the heaven which is over your head shall be bronze and the earth which is under you iron. That's the idea of no rain and hard ground as a result. The Lord will make the rain of your land powder and dust. From heaven it shall come down on you until you are destroyed. Verse 38. You shall bring out much seed to the field, but you will gather in little, for the locust will consume it. You shall plant and cultivate your vineyards, but you will neither drink of the wine nor gather the grapes, for the warm worm will devour them. All right, what, what I want you to see here is that this mention in 2 Kings chapter 4 that there was a famine in the land is not just the result of natural occurrence. It's not just, oh, well, every once in a while it doesn't rain, every once in a while there's famine in the land. We know that there is widespread idolatry amongst the people of God, widespread faithlessness, infidelity amongst the people of God. And the famine that they are experiencing is a result of that. It's, it's covenant curses upon them for their lack of faith. And I want you to see that that's the context in which Elisha is doing his ministry. It's not a season of revival. It's a season of apostasy. It's a season of rebellion. And Elisha is speaking the word of God into that season. The expository commentary says it like this. It says, The fact that there is famine in the land when Elisha arrives at Gilgal, which is the very place where God's people first entered the land, that is a reminder that God's people as a whole are characterized by rebellion rather than by obedience. And that covenant curse dominates their experience rather than covenant blessing. Right? I want you to understand that. Arthur Pink, in his commentary on this passage, spends a great deal of time trying to bring this into his modern culture by saying that although his people were not experiencing a physical famine, they were experiencing a spiritual famine. And I wonder if we could say the same thing. That although uh, the crops might still be growing and, and, and things like that around here, we not, might not be hard-pressed to find our next meal, I wonder if we could say that, that we are living in a season of spiritual famine here in our culture. That there is not a lot of faithful teaching and preaching, faithful Christian living all around, all around us. What I want you to see in this first verse is that in the midst 
of a lack of the word of God, Elisha preaches the word of God. And in the midst of a lack of food, Elisha brings food. And this is God's way of meeting the needs of his people. And I want us to be doing the same thing. I want us to be like Elisha in this. When when there is word of God not being preached, let's preach. Keep preaching. And when people are not being fed, let's feed them. And First Baptist Church, I think, does a good job of this. Look at verse 39 and 40. It says, Then one went out in the field to gather herbs and found a wild vine and gathered from it his lap full of wild gourds and came and sliced them into the pot of stew, for they did not know what they were. So they poured it out for the men to eat, and as they were eating of the stew, they cried out and said, O man of God, there is death in the pot, and they were unable to eat. There's a a line there that I would encourage you to commit to memory and then tuck it away for sparing use only. O man of God, there is death in the pot. Next time the meal is especially not good, oh, Laura, there is death in the pot. It can only be used every once in a while. Only needs to be used every once in a while, right? Tuck that one away and use it at your own risk. This guy in verse 39 is super interesting to me. He is one of the prophets, and without being told, he takes it upon himself to pitch in and help out. He walks around and finds some herbs. He walks around and finds some gourds growing on a wild vine. He grabs them up, he slices them up, and he throws them in the pot. And it's a bad move, proves to be a really bad move. He's a guy who takes the initiative, but he lacks discernment. He's a man of action, but not a man of knowledge. And he gets the whole group into a lot of trouble. He did not know what these gourds were when he sliced them up. But they were bad news. Now, if you read uh, a bunch of commentaries about this, you're going to see that there's a ton of debate about exactly what these gourds were and exactly what they would have produced. Did they merely taste bad or were they killing people? I will tell you that I don't think it matters one bit. I don't think it is helpful in the grand scheme of things to determine exactly what uh, species of gourd this was. I don't think it's super helpful to try to determine exactly what the resulting Uh, malady was from the thing rather they were bad gourds and they said there's death in the pot and we cannot eat it anymore arthur pink allegorizes all of this this whole story to apply to spiritual famine in his day and i believe there's spiritual famine in our day he basically said that when people are lacking god's word they hunger for god's word and they are willing to eat anything that looks like god's word even if it might cause them great harm. You catch the logic there? Read it in his own words. Arthur Pink says it like this. Seasons of dearth, that word should be dearth. Uh, Autocorrect changed it to death. The word is dearth. Seasons of dearth are peculiarly dangerous ones. Why so? Because in times of famine, food is scarce. And because there is less to select from, we are very apt to be less particular And act on the principle of beggars can't be choosers. So it is spiritually. When there is a famine of hearing the words of the Lord, Satan sees to it that there is no shortage of spurious food. Witness the number of tracts from cultists and pornographic booklets which are so freely circulated. To say nothing of the vile nature in which the things of God are openly derided. And then he closes this idea by saying Satan is a subtle imitator. 
And this is why Mormonism is so scary to me. Especially amongst evangelicals who aren't serious about the Word of God, aren't seriously familiar with the true Word of God. The Mormons come along and they share a thing that looks like food and it smells like food, but let me tell you, when you throw it in the pot, there will be death in the pot. There will be death in the pot because of these lies. Just because it looks like food and smells like food doesn't mean it's true food. I think Arthur Pink is on the right track here. We must be careful in an age where the Word of God is taking a back seat in the church to entertainment, politics, self-help, self-improvement, etc. Let's be a church that is a lighthouse, a beacon that holds forth the Word of God for the people of God. A place where people can come and feed, be fed, true food from the Word of God. Now before we move on, I want you to see that in this crisis, the sons of the prophets call out to Elisha for help. Oh man of God, there's death in the pot. Once again, we see the importance of turning to the Lord for help in our times of trouble. That's one of the consistent themes in all of these miracles we have seen so far with Elisha. Is they're turning to Elisha saying, we need some help. But we've said over and over again that their turn to Elisha is not merely a turn to Elisha. It's ultimately a turn to the Lord as, and Elisha as his representative. They are turning to the Lord for help. And the Lord is providing the help that they need. Look at verse 41. Cracks me up. He said, now bring meal, threw it in the pot and said, pour it out for the people to eat. Then there was no harm in the pot. It, it almost makes me laugh because we see all of this detail getting us into trouble, right? All of this detail about the sons of the prophets sitting there, Elisha teaching them, Elisha uh, preparing the stew, the dude that goes out and slices up the gourds into the pot, all of that detail. And then when we get to the very climax of the whole story, he's like, bring me some flour, throw it in the pot, we're good to go. Like that, that's... That's the way this is all solved. But I think there's some important lessons for us to see in this. Number one, Elisha doesn't give up. Elisha doesn't throw a fit. Elisha doesn't rail against that guy who ruined the stew. Elisha takes care of it in, in a miraculous way. Elisha solves the problem. This is about miracle number eight, depending on how you count them, in Elisha's life and ministry. Miracle number eight so far. And there are many more to come. And this, this miracle is not as spectacular as what we saw last week when he raises the Shunammite son from the dead. But this is powerful and it is important. The expository commentary says God is acting through Elisha to deal with all manner of threats. It's, it's not as if God is just concerned about dead children. God is also concerned about poison stew. Like these daily needs that might not seem as significant, the Lord is at work in those things as well. In fact, the next story seems to clarify that in an even more powerful way. Look at verse 42. This is a different scene, not unconnected from what we saw a second ago, but a different scene. It says, Now a man came from Baal Shalisha and brought the man of God bread of the first fruits, 20 loaves of barley, and fresh ears of grain in his sack. This is wild. And on first reading, it doesn't seem very strange, but this is, this is really a strange story. Here is a guy who is from a place that is named for idolatry. Here's a guy who's from the very heart of Baal worship, and yet he seems to be a man of faith. 
He seems to have walked out of his city of Baal worship and seems to be a man of faith. Look at him. He recognizes Elisha as the man of God. He brings this gift to the man of God. He recognizes something powerful and important in Elisha. Notice also that he brings a sacrifice that is outside of the prescription of the law. He brings a sacrifice that is intended to be provision for the prophet. And notice also, maybe most significantly, he brings loaves and ears of corn probably from the first fruit in a time of famine. That's that's big. Like if there is famine in the land, you probably don't make extra offerings. You probably don't make extra sacrifices from the very first fruits of that. And yet that's what this guy is doing. I think it is an act of faith on his part. It is a huge sacrifice to bring the first 20 loaves and the first ears of corn from your harvest when there's going to be not much harvest. And yet he brings this to the man of God. It is huge sacrifice and it is deep faith. And it seems to be totally unexpected especially in the context of the majority of God's people having turned away from him. Here, a man from the heart of Baal country comes with the humility and faith that few from Israel have. And this is encouraging to us. This is encouraging to me. It teaches us that in the midst of seasons of despair, there are reasons for hope. In the midst of dark days, there are glimmers of light. And I'm not always quick to see those. When the dark clouds form, sometimes that's all I can see. And yet God consistently provides rays of light in the midst of the darkness for our encouragement. I think the other thing we see in this part of the text is that when it seems like everyone has turned away, there's a guy like this. Elijah has a similar experience, remember, when he goes... Running away from Jezebel, he says, I, I only am left. He thinks he's the only one that is faithfully serving the Lord. And yet the Lord reminds him, I've saved hundreds who have not bowed the knee to Baal. You're not the only one. And it's good when a guy like this shows up. There is hope in the midst of despair. Look at the next part. Elisha takes the bread. It says, he said, give them to the people that they may eat. His attendant said, what, will I set this before a hundred men? But he said, give them to the people that they may eat. For thus says the Lord, they shall eat and have some left over. There are a few things to notice here. Number one, Elisha has a concern for the people around him and not just himself. The text doesn't indicate at all that the man who brought this bread to Elisha intended for Elisha to share it with anyone. Seems like he brought it to the man of God. And Elisha was in a position to say, excellent, I've got provision for the next several days. Excellent, in a time of famine, the Lord has provided for me, for my sustenance, so that I can get through the next several days. And yet Elisha doesn't seem to have that thought at all. He immediately says, excellent, I can share this with all these people. All these other people are hungry, and I can share this provision with them. Elisha has a concern for the people around him and not just himself. I love Elisha's compassion for suffering people. It's it's one of the things, you you can't get away from it when you read his story. He has serious compassion for suffering people, not just these, but all kinds of suffering people. Second thing I want to notice here is the skepticism of the attendant, who's probably Gehazi. He's like, this is too little food for this many people. This is 20 loaves for 100 men. 
a few ears of corn for a hundred men. He is very similar to the disciples of the Lord Jesus when Andrew brings the lad with the loaves and the fishes. Like, yeah, we got, we got five loaves and two fish, but what in the world good is that going to do for 5,000 men? He seems to have the same kind of skepticism, but Elisha, on the other hand, has all of this confidence. He's like, set it before the people. And the, and, the, and the servant is like, no, 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 it's not enough. It's not enough for them. And he says, set it before the people so that they may eat because the Lord has said they will eat and have some left over. I want you to notice here that Elisha's confidence is not in his ability to control portions or scatter it out uh, strategically. His confidence is in the faithfulness of God unto his own word. If the Lord has said it, it will happen. This is the first time in the account of Elisha that we have seen the word of the Lord, the word of the Lord emphasized. It was all over the place with Elijah. Elijah was always active. The word of the Lord came to Elijah and told him to do this. The word of the Lord came to Elijah. We were constantly seeing that with with Elijah. We haven't seen it yet with Elisha, but here we start to. I want you to notice that as we continue our study of Elisha, you're going to see the central um, position of the word of the Lord. But what I want you to get here is that Elisha has confidence that this will happen because the Lord has said it will happen. And we can have confidence, utter confidence, that the Lord will do what he has said he will do. If he has made a promise, he will keep it. And we can move forward with confidence based on the word of God. In fact, look at it, verse 44. He says, at the end of verse 43, he said, Give it to the people that they may eat, for thus says the Lord, they shall eat and have some left over. So he set it before them, and they ate and had some left over, according to the word of the Lord. Now we could, at this point, simply rejoice that the Lord provided bread and corn for all of these people, but it is better for us to rejoice that the Lord fulfills his word. It's better for us to look at the principle here, not just the action, but the principle under the action. The Lord fulfills his word. He keeps his promises. He does what he says he will do. Always. And we can trust him. We can trust him to keep his word in our lives as well. So three applications in this text for today. Number one, we must turn to the Lord in our times of need. And man, I'm getting tired of saying that. If you have noticed, that's been one part of the application every week. Every week, just about so far, as we've talked about the life and ministry of Elisha, we have said we must turn to the Lord in our times of need. I'm getting tired of saying it, but I need to hear it over and over. I'm going to keep saying it because I need to hear it over and over and over because I am so prone, so prone when life is hard to turn inward, to say, how can I fix this? Or to turn outward and look at my friends and say, how can they fix this? I am so prone to turn all kinds of directions other than upward. And so I'm going to keep preaching this part of it for my own sake. You might not need it at all, but I need it every day. That in seasons of need, we must turn to the Lord. Whether our needs are once in a lifetime, raise the dead kind of needs or whether they are daily smaller needs, we must turn to the Lord. Doesn't Jesus invite us to do that when he teaches us how to pray? When he teaches us how to pray, doesn't he include 
give us this day our daily bread, doesn't he teach us to turn to the Father for our daily sustenance? Not just our great, major, once-in-a-lifetime needs, but our everyday needs. Aren't we called to turn to the Lord in those times? We must rely on the Lord not just in massive crisis, when life falls completely apart, but we must rely on the Lord every morning when we get up for the needs of the day. So number one, we must turn to the Lord in our times of need. Number two, he takes care of us in a variety of ways. He's going to meet our needs in a variety of ways. We have seen this throughout Elisha's story. Some ways he provides for us are normal and natural, right? Some ways he provides for us, he provides for Elisha and others through the generosity and hospitality of others. And, and, and let, me, let me make a, a little bit of a jump here. If one of the ways the Lord provides for us is through the generosity and hospitality of others, then that's one of the ways he provides for others through us as well. One of the ways the Lord takes care of your neighbors is through you. It's through your hospitality and your generosity. It's normal means that the Lord is, he's not just taking care of you that way, he's positioned you to take care of other people that way. So we want to have an eye, as one of my friends said this week, towards smaller needs. We need to be looking for the small needs in our community because God cares about those things and we should too. Sometimes he cares for us in, in the normal cycle of, of planting and harvest, of work and reward and all of those things. Sometimes he takes care of us through the most normal, natural means you can imagine. And sometimes he takes care of us through abnormal and supernatural means, through miracles, signs, and wonders. Either way, it's him taking care of us. Either way, he's the one that meets our needs, right? Either way, he's the one that gets the glory in the process. And the last application is most important. Jesus is better than all of this. All of this that we have seen in Elisha today, all of this is just a shadow of something greater that is fulfilled in the Lord Jesus Christ. It's fulfilled on one level in that Jesus shows up on the scene and he does this better than Elisha does it. He feeds a multitude better than Elisha. What is this? Among, what are these 20 loaves amongst a thousand men? Jesus says, I'll take that up a notch and I'll use five loaves to, yeah, five loaves? To feed 5,000 men not to mention the women and children. Jesus takes that to a whole other level, right? But it goes way beyond that. Jesus is better than Elisha, not just because he does more, but because he does things that Elisha could never do. In fact, in John chapter 6, I want you to turn to John chapter 6. In John chapter 6, in verses 1 through 14, we read this miraculous account of Jesus feeding the 5,000. He feeds the 5,000 in verses 1 through 14. In verses 15 through 25, we've got the evening after that. Jesus walks on the water. You've got that amazing scene. And then in verse 26, we pick up like the next day. The next day, just in the aftermath of the feeding of the 5,000, Jesus says something that no one else can say. Look at it in the text. Jesus answered them and said, Truly, truly, I say to you, you seek me not because you saw signs, but because you ate of the loaves and were filled. Do not work for food which perishes, but for the food which endures to eternal life, which the Son of Man will give to you, for on him the Father God has set his seal. You catch what he's doing there? He's saying, oh, 
I've got, I've got more to give than food that perishes. I've got more to give than loaves and fishes. Read on. Therefore, they said to him, what shall we do so that we may work the works of God? Jesus answered and said to them, this is the work of God that you believe, that you believe in him whom he has sent. So they were saying, what then do you do for a sign so that we may see and believe you? What work do you perform? Our fathers ate manna in the wilderness. As it is written, he gave them bread out of heaven to eat. Jesus then said, truly, truly, I say to you, it's not Moses who has given you the bread out of heaven, but it is my father who gives you the true bread out of heaven. For the bread of God is that which comes down out of heaven and gives life to the world. Then they said to him, Lord, always give us this bread. And Jesus said to them, I am the bread. I am the bread of life. He who comes to me will not hunger, and he who believes in me will never thirst. But I said to you that you have seen me and yet do not believe. All that the Father gives to me will come to me, and the one who comes to me I will certainly not cast out. For I have come down from heaven not to do my own will, but the will of him who sent me. This is the will of him who sent me, that of all he has given me I lose nothing but raise it up on the last day. For this reason, for this is the will of my Father, that everyone who beholds the Son and believes in him will have eternal life, and I myself will raise him up on the last day. Listen to how this goes then. It says, therefore, the Jews were grumbling about him, because he said, I am the bread that came down from heaven. They were saying, is not this Jesus, the son of Joseph, whose father and mother we know? How does he then say, I have come down from heaven? And Jesus answered and said to them, do not grumble among yourselves. No one can come to me unless the Father who sent me draws him. And I will raise him up on the last day, as it is written in the prophets, and they shall be taught of God. Everyone who has heard and learned from the Father comes to me. Not that anyone has seen the Father except one, the one who is from God. He has seen the Father. Truly, truly, I say to you, he who believes in me, he who believes has eternal life. I am the bread of life. Your fathers ate manna in the wilderness and died. This is the bread which comes down from heaven so that one may eat of it and not die. I am the living bread that comes down out of heaven. If anyone eats of this bread, he will live forever. And the bread also which I give for the life of the world is my flesh. I want you to see Jesus offers something better. Bread of life that comes from heaven. You eat that bread, you live forever. Eat the bread Elisha gave, you get hungry again the next day. You eat the bread that is Jesus Christ, you live forever. What does that mean? It means believe in him. It means trust in him. It means depend on him and receive the gift of eternal life. Let's stand together and pray. Father, thank you for time uh, together. Thank you for the constant reminder in the life and ministry of Elisha that we must turn to you in our times of need. Help us to learn that. Help me to learn it. I'm so stubborn, so slow. Thank you for the constant reminder. Keep striking, keep striking that blow till I learn it. Thank you for the variety of ways you take care of us. And thank you ultimately for Jesus, who is bread that gives eternal life. Thank you for men and women and boys and girls who have, who have eaten of that bread, have experienced and are experiencing the life that comes only from Jesus. And I pray for others who have not. That today would be the day. Today would be the day they feast on the Lord Jesus Christ and find 
in him and him alone, life that is forever. Teach, teach us about your holiness. Teach us about our sinfulness. Teach us about the sacrifice of Christ on our behalf. Give us faith to trust in the person and work of Jesus Christ and repentance to turn away from our sin and walk in faithfulness to you. Have your way as we respond to your word today. In Christ's name.